This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. right into listener and mail we we could i mean do you have an alternate thing i mean it snowed finally is that a thing or do we (laughs) talking about the weather feels like the i mean i guess it's the same as talking about the weather when you're doing small talk it's just like can't think anything else to say welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew it snowed whatever we're over it Boring. Really, I really like snow. There hasn't been enough of it. Anyway, it's fine. You wanted to talk about listener mail. Do you have I any? Mean, we mail? wanted to talk about it. Don't like. Don't put it all on me. I'm gonna blame you. It, the listener mail better be good. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, our listener mail is generally uniformly good. It's it's pretty good. It's a yeah. lot of recommendations, which uh, we love to get. That just doesn't necessarily make for good. Like. Yeah, we shouldn't do like a weekly report on the books that people want us to right. read. It's it's a, yeah, it's a lot of recommendations. It's a few just like compliments, and then mixed in there, like I don't know, like Crunch Berries in a bowl, of Captain Crunch are like backhanded compliments that I don't <laughs> think people meant to be backhanded. <laughs> well, we do kind of set ourselves up for them though, because we come at all this stuff with like we don't know, we don't get it. Like that's our that's kind of our shtick. Yeah. Is that we don't get it. So when people yeah. actually compliment us for not getting it, they're just being <laughs> truthful, Andrew. Right. They're just writing. These are the characters that we play on our podcast. That we oh, do. I wish I was playing a character. Uh, listener Morgan says, uh, I'd like to hear you guys address the social repercussions of being the guy who reads alone in bars. <laughs> because uh, we've been doing this thing on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash overdue pod. Check it out. Uh, where we uh, tweet pictures from where we're reading. And so I tweeted from like the middle seat of an airplane. And then Craig and I have both tweeted from bars where uh-huh. there's like a half drunk beer and a mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. And that's apparently becoming a thing. So, C- Craig, tell me about like, why were you reading alone in a bar? I was having uh, a bar, a bar, a beer. It's been a long week. Having a beer in a bar. I was having a bar and a beer. Uh, it was a boar. <laughs> I was having a boar burger. What? Uh, and uh, I was <laughs> killing some time before uh, before a preview of my of the show I'm directing. And it was like a two hour break, so I was like, I can have a nice dinner at the top of the break and then just kill some time reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I was there, and that's why I wasn't like with anyone because like people were off, you know, just getting their own getting their me time after rehearsal and getting ready for a show so well i'm sure after directing a a show that's in tech and in previews like you need some some craig time too i do need some craig time and and, craig time you know (laughs) trademark craig time um (laughs) and that's fine everybody needs their time but then you go to a bar ironically enough you don't get me time at a bar it's 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 harder to come by than you think I don't know. I think that by being the person who's sitting there and reading, you create this this bubble that you exist in where people don't interrupt you except to refill your drink unless you like invite it or look around or something. I I yeah, I did look up in the middle of a like hypothetical what would you have done with the Powerball money conversation? Oh no. I got dragged into that for 3 sentences before I just looked back to the book. Thank God I had the book. I didn't want to I... be a part of that. I think I would have I would buy my way onto a more successful podcast. <laughs> and leave you holding the bag. Oh no. The other the <laughs> other time I got I literally got a hey, what are you reading there once at a bar? This was oh almost a hundred episodes ago, maybe more, when I was reading the elements of style. <laughs> oh god. At a bar. <laughs> And the the bartender did not know what to do with me. 
Congrats, super nerd. They probably have a picture of you on the wall in that bar. Like, do not serve this man. He's obviously in here to stalk people and take their hair. Should we talk about this week's book? Do you want to yeah, talk about bar- um, bard every- reading? Um, no. Okay, great. Never mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> good, good radio. Good radio. <laughs> That's the first rule of improv is just to shut down anything that you think might not be a good conversation topic. It's not. We weren't even improving. I just asked you a question. No, thanks. The, that's also that's the first rule of small talk too. It's a really it's really valuable. <laughs> just know when to say no, and the time to say no is always. Dale Carnegie once said, "No, that's it." <laughs> Winston Churchill, no. <laughs> All right, so every week on this podcast, if you made it in this far and don't know what it's supposed to be about, one of us reads a book that we've never read before, and then we tell the other person about it, and uh, you get to listen in on that conversation and probably have fun doing it. Probably. Craig, what did you read this week, and who was it by? I read A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. Mm-hmm. Which uh, this book is, according to its cover, it is a classic bestseller and a landmark of 20th century literature. Uh, That doesn't really tell you much about it at all, actually. Uh, It's a a post-apocalyptic sci-fi novel uh, that was written in the 50s as three separate kind of like short story, like baby novel, baby novella kind of things. And then was... While Miller was finishing the third story, he realized that it should probably just be one big novel. See, um, they could have fit all of that on the front cover of this book. I yeah, think. they probably I don't know why they. I don't know why the descriptions need to be so short. <laughs> They've got all this space. Uh, so I think it's important to to know that this was written in the late fifties. Uh, you know, after World War Two. Um, Miller himself, I don't know what else you know about Miller. The, the most important thing with regards to this book is that he was a gunner uh, in the Air Force uh, in Italy. The Army, the Army Air Corps. Oh, excuse me, Army Air right. Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, and he flew like 50 missions uh, in Italy, including the bombing of the Benedictine Abbey at Monte Cassino. Yeah. So that that's um that's an event that I think traumatized him. Like it's it's been said that he had PTSD like decades before the mm-hmm. disorder even had a name. Like I yeah. think that's that's something we normally associate with uh veterans of like Vietnam and 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 later wars like the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, that kind of stuff. But um yeah, people. It turns out that people had bad reactions to having to kill other people before we invented a name for it. Yeah, we talked a little bit about it when we did All Quiet on the Western Front. Like you used to just call it shell shock. Like, oh, you got mm-hmm. shell shock because you were in that trench for too long. The and shell shock sounds too much like a '90s game show, though. <laughs> you just I, been shell shocked. I always associate it with. Ninja- I'm Mark Summers. <laughs> Welcome to Shell Shocked. I'm Leonardo the Ninja Turtle. Welcome to Shell Shocked. <laughs> yeah, so he uh he certainly did not care for this mission it seems because it, it directly inspired this book. Uh what's interesting about that mission is that the reason that the abbey was bombed was not because it was actually being used by the Germans. We were having trouble uh you know breaking uh, the axis lines and uh, so they they saw this abbey and said well that's really fortified I bet if they wanted to they could use it and it would be really hard for us to break the line so they they did it and apparently there were 200 civilians there just like seeking refuge yeah right because the, de- the deal with this abbey is that um, it was originally established um, in like the 500s mm-hmm. sometime like mm-hmm. it was really old uh, the 5th century B.C., so not even the 500s A.D. <laughs> and um, it was take it was like destroyed and rebuilt several times uh, throughout its history. Mm-hmm. So like Napoleon got to it and, and some other people got to it. And, and every time it happened, like it was built up again and it was like built up more and more fortified. 
Yeah. And uh, of course, it's been it's been rebuilt since it was totally destroyed in uh, 1944 in World War Two. But um, but yeah, I was reading about the the um, the bombing in World War Two in particular and. There were some interesting little tidbits. Like it, it had a bunch of manuscripts from uh, Tacitus, Cicero, Horace, Virgil, and Ovid—all big names in mm-hmm. uh, classical literature. Yeah, those are the and, those um, are the big hitters. Yeah, heavy hitters. Great And uh, the Nazis actually helped the monks remove those manuscripts before fighting could really start at the huh. Abbey. And okay. most of the monks left with those works. Yes, but um, that's it's it's interesting because. A lot of what Miller's writing concerns itself with, like as far as I could see or as far as I could find, like when I was researching, is um, is ideas like the loss of knowledge. Yes. And like the oral transmission of knowledge and of like priests and monks preserving archives of literature. Right. Which is like this is the big thing in antiquity is like nobody could read. Yep. And. As a result, like most like most people didn't have that many books and they were primarily kept at like abbeys and and, and other like religious places and monks. Like if you were going to make a copy, you had to do it longhand. And it was and like throughout the years, throughout, you know, their, their wars, they're just there's just like neglect, like people having more immediate concerns than like making sure that people know what some 800 year old dude said. <laughs> like we lose we lose a lot of the stuff like for Tacitus, just to take an example, um, his big work is the annals. And it's a uh, not a firsthand account for most of it. But um, did you pronounce that right, Andrew? Tacitus. No, annals. No, the annals. Oh, OK. Like years not like, like not like butts. No, I Tacitus you, is the butts. No, that's not. What are you saying? <laughs> Just making sure that you're getting history right. Yeah, I'm getting history right. We, Tacitus's book about butts actually was lost. <laughs> to time. The Nazis just threw it on the fire. Ugh. Get it out of here. But uh that book like a lot of it survives but big chunks of it don't. So it's really it's really interesting to study it now because so much of what we think about the Roman emperors, like so much of their historical reputation comes from that book. Yes. And other like sources closely associated with it that Certainly. It's, just, it's really debilitating to scholarly study. Like obviously it's got a lot of a lot of biases and, and errors already. And then compounding that is the fact that we are missing gigantic chunks of it. Well, and you take a you take a look at something like Homeric Odes and what we can glean about Greek society from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, you know, is this a historic account or is this you know, how much of this is mingled with myth? A right. lot of it. Um and that's that you're right, that is what most of this book is about you know this is the yeah. only novel of miller's uh that was published during his lifetime he wrote you know tens of dozens of short stories uh for the various science fiction magazines of the 20th century mm-hmm. that i don't know how many of them still persist to this day i don't read a lot of you know science well, I mean, fiction quarterly you're talking about magazines so the safe answer is probably probably zero. none of them yeah none of them <laughs> yeah a little sad i guess uh <laughs> so he published this in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction each you know individual volume and then put it together in 1959 and then the sequel which is called oh let me pull it up um, real i quick. have it written down it's uh the uh saint Leibowitz and the wild horsewoman Yes. Uh, it was finished and published by a person named Terry Bisson. Um, and it was it was mostly finished and apparently pretty polished. Uh, and then the rest of it, uh, Bisson filled in from uh, the outlines yeah. that, that he left. And then I, as far as I can tell, it's the only major posthumous work of his that we have. Because he, after the success of Canticle for Leibowitz, which was a success in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right away, actually. And it's... Yeah, and it's it's generally along with a lot of Ray Bradbury stuff credited with uh, helping sci-fi sort of tr- transcend. It's I have this from a New Yorker a New Yorker article that I read about uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, but it, it helped uh, sci-fi get out of the quote-unquote ghetto of okay. like genre fiction. <laughs> okay, okay. 
Um, but yeah, after after this novel success, he didn't really publish anything else, and increasingly he became a recluse and was not even like willing to communicate with his family members yeah, or his yeah. agent or, or anybody else who had really been close to him up until that point. And I, I think he ended up taking his own life after his wife passed in 96, uh, which is then Bisson finished the second novel, which I don't know if you saw that quote. Someone referred to St. Leibowitz and the Wild Horsewoman as, quote, Walter Miller's other novel. <laughs> like... <laughs> Speaking of like backhanded compliments, well, and I found I find it really interesting. I'm looking at the uh, cover of the edition of Leibowitz that you read, uh-huh. and uh, and the book cover says author of Saint Leibowitz I and know. the Wild Horsewoman on it. Like, this is really it's this weird like cyclical thing, which is kind of interesting. In that's sort of how the book is structured, but that that's that's very funny. Should we just get in the book at this point? Uh yeah, let let's do it. Uh Walter M. Miller Jr. short short version of that story is that his life was sort of tragic and that World War Two it's 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 again I think we've talked about this several times, is it's it's it we are used to thinking of it in very black and white terms where we are the good guys and they were the bad guys. But in the last couple of decades we've we've really started examining things like firebombing dresden and bombing this this abbey and like japanese internment camps and really trying to grapple with the bad stuff that we did yeah i think and like getting over this whole like greatest generation it's worth noting though that like a lot of the books that we're reading that tackle this stuff were written in the 15 to 20 years after that after world war ii right? right and often and often by the victors yes and similarly i think we're seeing We've been seeing for the past couple years the first major wave of fiction and movies that are dealing with, you know, the Iraq war of the early 2000s. So there's a there's a cyclical thing going on there. Um, So this book takes place in the future and it it is technically (laughs) sci fi. Technically, though. interesting that you point out that it kind of elevated the genre a little bit because it certainly isn't a it's not a space opera it's not here goofy monsters like it is one of the more realistic quote-unquote post-apocalypse novels i've read Mm -hmm. and and given a given a media landscape right now where we're dealing with a lot of apocalypse fiction um because i don't know if you've seen the winter that we're having but um it's it's not as sensational i think as i mean we're right now we're dealing with apocalypse facts stop (laughs) stop it (laughs) (laughs) and i I'd, i'd actually be interested to talk about and i i don't know that we can but i'd i'd be interested to talk about how this stacks up to stuff like uh slaughterhouse five or cat's cradle like the because Vonnegut was coming at World War II from that kind of same perspective where he's writing science fiction-y stuff. And also he seemed to have a lot of other thoughts about like the stuff that the Allies did in World War II. I don't know. Yeah. It seems like there are parallels here that while I was researching, they didn't they didn't really seem to come up that much. I don't I don't know mm. the extent to which Miller and 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 uh, Vonnegut ran in the same circles. But No, I there's a so the the background of the book and background meaning the like the fictional background of what has happened mm-hmm. this book takes place starts in the 26th 26th century okay. uh, some 600 years after the world has basically been destroyed by a nuclear war uh, which is called the like flame deluge and in you always the always gotta call it something don't I, you? well so what's happened is uh, right after the war, there was this backlash against uh, s- basically science and technology and smart people because they made that happen. Um, <laughs> this And this is called the simplification. Um, so anyone of learning and eventually anyone who could, who could read was killed by mobs who proudly took the name of simpletons, Andrew, in the same way that like when I was reading The Scarlet Pimpernel, they characters would call each other citizen as like a a name for revolutionaries right mm-hmm. like simple so again again i'm not really seeing where this is fiction yeah oh oh boy 
Uh, people people who are proudly wearing their ignorance on their sleeves that's weird i've never heard of that before (laughs) uh and isaac edward Leibowitz was a jewish electrical engineer and he's working for the military and his wife died he survived the nuclear war and he converted to catholicism and founded an order the albertian order of Leibowitz. and uh he set up an abbey in the southwest, and their goal would be preserving knowledge from before the time of the deluge. Now, this is the southwestern United States? Yes. yes. Okay. And that's an interesting part of this book is that it certainly, the book never says explicitly, like, this is the future of your United States. But it's, well, certainly... it's not it's not like a handmaid's tale thing where right at the beginning you get oh these are bags that still say US Army on them. Yeah, no no, they don't the do US that. The US doesn't exist anymore. Though yeah. the first character you meet is uh is brother Francis Gerard of Utah. So like you you get names from places in America like Denver is a republic and Texarkana, which is apparently a dual city in Texas and Arkansas. <laughs> it, this is a real thing. This is a real place that exists. It's not a thing from a Final Fantasy game. <laughs> it sounds like a final boss. <laughs> uh, it does exist, and it becomes a city-state like midway through the book. That's very okay. Um, so Leibowitz is then martyred by mobs of people who discover that he is a booklegger. And these are people... You've read Fahrenheit 451, Andrew? Yeah. Uh, so it was at, a long time ago. Yeah. So some some of these like high school books I read a long time ago and didn't appreciate. Yeah. I wonder if we could bend the rules of the show and have me read them again. Yeah, probably. Like that, that and like Lore of the Flies, I barely remember and didn't appreciate at the time. Well, so. you could do the thing where you could just claim to be me where I didn't where read some didn't of them. Where you just didn't read it. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I wasn't as bad of a student as you. <laughs> Still got by. So we're talking about bookleggers? Bookleggers. And these are very similar to the folks you meet at the end of Paradise 451, where their job is to memor first their job is to memorize texts. Any like any book, because books are being burned by the thousand. Mm-hmm. And just like get them in your head so you can write them down later. And if there is a text that's on a paper, like hide it in kegs, basically. Uh, and store it in this abbey. So the abbey of Leibowitz becomes this kind of bastion. It's a surrogate for the abbey that Miller bombed. Um, This bastion of pre-deluge knowledge, what they call memorabilia. And some of it, they don't understand most of it. Like It's strongly implied that a lot of these monks that we meet speak Latin almost conversationally, and don't fully know pre-deluge English. So they have to like learn it. And they don't really understand everything that they're copying. Um, or the implications of all the, the handful of science textbooks that they have. Yeah, and I wonder the degree to which that was true in real life of real monks. Like, it, yeah. like I'm sure some of these books that were preserved were just like people copying shapes. Yeah, certainly. Like just symbols that you didn't understand. Yeah, right. right. Uh, so w- that's funny that you mentioned that because the first thing that happens in this book is uh, Brother Francis of Utah. He's serving. <laughs> <laughs> he is like serving his Lenten vigil uh, on the ruins of what turns out to be beneath it a fallout shelter where the Leibowitz was, the Blessed Leibowitz. And. Uh, he discovers some relics because a wandering like man comes through and helps him build a shelter with some rock that he marks and he finds the shelter and there are relics signed by the Leibowitz. And when I say relic, Andrew, I mean like a grocery list and a blueprint for a machine that no one understands Mm -hmm. and like a memo to someone. And like a pack of fruit fruit stripe gum. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, And so, you know, certainly Brother Francis is not the smartest knife in the drawer, but he understands. That is a mixed metaphor that you just made. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Not the sharpest crayon in the box. Um, And but he knows that it's important. He can see the signature of the Leibowitz 
and uh, he takes he finds this blueprint. And what's funny about this blueprint is it's for a, it's for some electrical machine because Leibowitz was an engineer, and it takes ten years before Brother Francis realizes that it's white on blue paper, like your traditional like cartoon blueprint, right? Right. And when he's copying it, because that's his task, is he thinks that he has to spend all this ink to copy all the blue, like it's important. <laughs> And someone else has That's to point wonderful. out, yeah. Someone else has to point out to him that he could just invert it, that the lines are what matters. Mm-hmm. Like it's that kind of thing. Um, and so, what's happening is the Leibowitz is up for canonization, and by uh, by the Pope of New Rome, which is not far from where where this abbey is in the west, mm-hmm. and the abbot is worried. Abbot Arcos is worried that all of these new relics suddenly being discovered is going to delay the canonization of Leibowitz because the church is going to have to come out and inspect it, which, of course, they do. They decide that everything's on the up and up, that this works, that the Leibowitz should be canonized as a saint. And they invite Francis to come to New Rome to, like, show his relics that he found. Now, this takes place over 15 years, Andrew. So already we're like the first third of the book spans almost the entirety of this guy's life. Mm -hmm. Along the way to New Rome, he is carrying the blueprint of the Blessed Leibowitz's blueprint and an illumination of that blueprint. Do you know what an illumination is, Andrew, when I'm talking about manuscripts? Um, I, it's escaping me right now. So hit me. Ex- wait, I do know, but explain it to me as if I don't know. <laughs> it is like you take a, you take like a writing or a text and you adorn it, right? So you, maybe you recreate it and you use gold ink to draw leaves you around. Draw, you draw like a cool picture of someone riding a skateboard on it or something. I mean, those are notes from like physics class, but yeah, they're illuminated <laughs> manuscripts. That works. Uh, so Brother Francis has taken f- literally 15 years. He gets an hour a day, kind of like people who work at Google. He gets an hour a day <laughs> to work on whatever he wants. And he's been working on this like copy of the Leibowitz print. He gets robbed on the way to New Rome by a mercenary and a group of what are called the Pope's children. Okay. And Pope's children are basically mutants from the fallout. And uh, a Pope several years before had said that they do, in fact, have souls, that they are not mutants have souls, that mutants have souls. Okay. Uh, and that's a that's an interesting idea that comes up later in the book is like is it murder to kill a mutant? Are they a man or not? Well, yeah, and in what to what degree are these just like misunderstood, misshapen people, and to what degree are they like feral, crazy uh, people? They're m- mostly the former, but some of them the latter. Okay. So, and I'm sure it's the latter people who define the entire yeah, like the every, entire like sub race for everything. Okay, so just like racism has always worked forever. Then yeah, basically Great, awesome. Uh, even in <laughs> even in the future past, it's the same. Uh, cool. So Francis gets robbed, and this robber says, "Well, I'm not going to kill you. I just want to take this stuff that looks important, and I want to take this blueprint that's covered in gold." that you say you spent 15 years on. I don't want to take the ratty one that's just blue and white. And so Francis is super bummed out because this thing he spent all his time making is gone, but then he takes the original relic to the Pope, and the Pope's like, hey, listen, those 15 years were not for nothing. You made a thing that distracted that robber from taking the real relic that was important. (laughs) God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, I'm sure that totally placated him. It did a little bit. For, again, remember, not the smartest knife in the drawer. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, man, like <laughs> there's a lot of competition in that <laughs> knife drawer, too. So the Pope, who he canonizes the Leibowitz, and he sends Francis back to the Abbey. He gives him some gold coins for his trouble because he heard in the story that the robber would would let him ransom back this blueprint that he made for gold coins. And so Francis goes back and he's like, Hey, I'm going to wait here for this guy. And lo and behold, 
Um, he gets killed. The Pope's children kill him, and that's the end of the first third of the book. Oops. Cool. He gets buried by the same wanderer that showed him where the fallout shelter was in the first place. And this is important because this guy crops up in all three of these stories, even though each story is about six centuries apart. Huh. All right. So we can talk at the end about what this guy is supposed to represent. Uh, yeah. And the, the big thing is that everyone that Francis told about this visit with the wanderer starts blowing it out of proportion and thinking that the wanderer might have been Leibowitz. Like okay. an, an apparition of the Leibowitz. And Francis is like, that's not true. I don't think so. I mean, maybe. I don't really know. <laughs> Clearly an authority. Yeah. Well, he's dead now. And then the wanderer had to bury him. And I was really shocked because I did not know when I was reading it that this book was three different chapters. Uh, it's like three different stories that three have been written. Three different stories, yeah. right. Um, because it ends with, hey, uh, all these buzzards really wanted to eat Francis, but because the Wanderer buried him, they couldn't. And so they flew over to Texarkana to eat for a little while until it became a city-state six centuries later. <laughs> And then the next, you turn the page, and it's six centuries later. We're still at the Abbey, uh, but there's a whole different cast of characters. So at this point, we are basically in the Renaissance, Andrew. So the the three parts of this book are the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, and modern times where we're on the brink of perpetual destruction. (laughs) Okay. So in the middle section, uh, Abbot Don Paolo is dealing with the fact that there is a secular scholar named Thon Tadeo Fardentrot. The last name's not important. They never that use sounds, it more than one. That sounds really, really accurate, though. Yeah. That sounds... You, I think you got it in I, one. I think I nailed it. Uh, he is running a college, which seems pretty new. Uh, at this point, I think technology has advanced to, like, guns. Like, they've made it that far up on the tech tree that there are guns they but put enough skill points into into guns that they exist now. yeah i think they've researched gunpowder okay um they don't have like engines or anything like that where are we on like electricity so wait just wait just one second we're getting right, there hit, hit me hit me with some electricity facts so what happens is Tadeo uh wants to go to the abbey and study all the memorabilia he thinks that there's a lot to be learned there, though he's really skeptical of history. He thinks that maybe 700 years ago, a bunch of people made up the relics and the stupid monks are just in the basement, like copying it ad infinitum without really knowing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Today I was a real cool guy, if you haven't uh-huh. noticed. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and he is also the cousin of Hannigan, mayor of Texarkana. So keep that in the back of your brain. All right. Tadeo's going to come to the Abbey. He's got guards from Hannigan who are going to come with him. And when he gets there, he reali- he discovers that Brother Cornhower... Cornhower? I don't know. That one that I That makes not sense. If, if he's got like a last name that's based on a thing that he does, then Cornhower is probably Let's right. Let's say Cornhower. All right. He has created a, quote, generator of electrical essences which is basically like a, a 19th century dynamo where three dudes walk on a treadmill and it generates electricity. It's basically a potato with a light bulb in <laughs> it's it. Basically a potato. <laughs> if a, if the potato was three monks that were not allowed to get off this treadmill and another monk that had to hold the arc in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's a light bulb. And so imagine I could not imagine seeing a light bulb for the first time. If my entire life had been sitting in a basement copying stuff by candlelight. Yeah, like I've seen too many light bulbs that like the wonder of the first light bulb that I ever saw has is, is long been lost on me. Is there any other? Okay, think about this, Andrew. Okay, okay, okay. Is there a technological innovation in your lifetime that you can remember being like wicked impressed by? The computer, I guess. I mean, we were... Um, what was the first we computer were, you used? I mean, we were we were pretty. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to say that we were like impoverished or anything, but I, I think I've talked a little bit on the show before about how we didn't have a ton of money growing up, and so my 
computer experience was happening like 10 years behind everybody else. So Fair enough. In um, the early 90s when like Windows 3.1 was all the rage and mm-hmm. people were playing like Doom and all that stuff, I was using like MS-DOS 5 on, uh-huh. a, on a dual floppy uh-huh. system with a re- just really old display and... Um, and and that that was like my first computer and i didn't realize at the time like how woefully outdated it was <laughs> um but yeah i thought i mean i thought that was great yeah yeah um when we and all the computers we got for a very long time were like hand me downs which i think i mean it might be the weird reason why i'm so willing to give computer stuff away to like literally everyone in my life yeah you're pretty good at <laughs> I it i just realized that about myself <laughs> It, um, I think it probably also spurred in you the like desire to work with stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's and a um, modular so, so nature. This, yeah. We got this old, um, it was a 486 for people who know like what that kind of stuff is. Oh, yeah. I remember and, when that was a uh, thing that mattered. And yeah, it was it was obviously like old enough to be junk to the person who was giving it to us, but it was like the first thing that, that we had that was new enough to connect to the internet. And that was awesome like that first yeah yeah that first like america online oh, demo yeah. cd that we oh were yeah doing those hours on like that that was like whoa <laughs> whoa so it's yeah tech it there's this moment where tadeo sees the the light that brother cornhoers built and it's impressive because cornhoer like doesn't necessarily know all the science that he's used he is compiled it from a bunch of fragments that he's been studying in his free time and today has been making all of his money and all of his reputation on being this like super secular science guy Mm -hmm. and he gets like wicked offended that someone built this and no one told him (laughs) and these monks who he's come here to like disprove are worth their memorabilia have like leapfrogged him but they turn it on so that he can study all the manuscripts by something better than candlelight uh so there's a lot of tension between him and the priests because he's like hey guys we are entering a new world where people care about knowledge again the simplification was 700 centuries ago and we're having not 700 well you know i'm okay um and we (laughs) are i feel like i need to keep you honest for this stuff (laughs) and we are rediscovering things faster and faster and we need to get this memorabilia out of the priest's hands so that people with more time on their hands who actually care about this stuff can learn from it and there's this back and forth where don paolo is saying uh no, you know, we've been fighting and dying for centuries to keep this stuff safe and you just want to take it out of here. And today I was saying people are hungry for it if you hold, you can't just hold on to wisdom until people are wise enough to use it. Like that is an arbitrary measure. Uh which is I like that kind of logic quandary a lot. Right, because if if they're if it's transformative enough, like they're never going to have the context for it until they actually use it like they'll never be ready if you don't if you don't expose them to it and at the same time though what becomes apparent in the third part of the book is that if this technology is going to lead you to the creation of whatever your society's garden of eden is your your curse of knowledge will prevent you from ever being satisfied with it so you will like run down this path of scientific materialism and you know, knowledge for all the wrong reasons. Um, Tadeo is kind of painted as this guy who's up out for his own reputation in as much as he's out for knowledge for knowledge's sake. Mm-hmm. So you get this, this sense that the monk's appreciation of it is purer because they associate it with God um, and a higher calling and whatnot. And again, like the world endured a giant flame deluge that killed everyone, so maybe <laughs> we should be careful with our knowledge, I might think. Uh, Let's we, get back all the knowledge except for this that part of it that killed everybody last time. <laughs> so the thing, uh, the part of the uh, like story, that, the story that gets told about the deluge, I kind of want to read that real quick because what happens is um, Tadeo's cousin Hannigan 
is planning to march westward with his armies and kind of unite the continent under one ruler, which mm-hmm. has yet to be done. He does this by like sending diseased cattle into the tribes of herders, which is like a real low move. Yeah, that is like smallpox blanket it's level. It's really awful. And he's Man. like making treaties with them to pit them against one another. And the underlying tension is that eventually he's probably going to march on Denver and it's very likely that he will want to use the abbey as a fortress, right? We were talking about the Benedictine abbey. Yeah. And all of the guards that are with Tadeo have been like making measurements of the various schematics of the building. And uh, Tadeo burns those schematics, thankfully. But this idea that princes and leaders like Hannigan are going to use this knowledge for evil is what's told in the story. So I kind of want to read this real quick. Okay, hit me. It was said that God, in order to test mankind, which had become swelled with pride as in the time of Noah, had commanded the wise men of that age to devise great engines of war, such as never had been had been before upon on earth, weapons of such might that they contained the very fires of hell, and that God had suffered these magi to place the weapons in the hand of princes, and to say to each prince, Only because the enemies have such a thing have we devised this for thee, in order that they may know that thou hast it also, and fear to strike. But the princes, putting the words of their wise men to naught, thought each to itself, If I but strike quickly enough, and in secret, I shall destroy those others in their sleep, and they will be none to be fight back, the earth shall be mine. Such was the (laughs) folly of princes, and there followed the flame deluge. So if I get the jump on everybody, I'm going to win. Yeah, I'm going to win. I'm a Waluigi. And I have nuclear weapons. <laughs> I'm going to win. And like, I don't know. I was reading that passage last week when that stuff was going off about whether or not North Korea has a nuke. And it just started bumming me out. Well, I mean, they do have nukes. It's just the question is like, how good are their nukes? How good are they at nukes? Really? Yeah. yeah it's pretty terrifying. Um. And yeah, the whole like mutually assured destruction thing is clearly what happened. Um, and the book, this book is arguing that it will happen again. Uh, so the second passage ends with Hannigan uh, killing a member of the church for trying to rat him out about going after the Abbey and war being on the horizon and the buzzards show up again. Um, oh, let me find this buzzard. Man, what would, what would buzzards be a symbol for? I'm having trouble really like imagining what, what an author would use buzzards to mean. Could you stop it for one second? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it's interesting because while I was researching this book, one of the things that came up was like how uh, Miller is is concerned with the idea of like history repeating itself yes or like history having like a cyclical thing which is which is definitely true when you like zoom out enough like the specifics are going to differ every time but mm-hmm. so 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 obviously in the second book he's already getting around to that like the potential for mankind to come back from the brink of destruction like just enough that it can get out to the brink again. Yeah, it's interesting because there's this swelling positivism for the f- like positivity for the first half of section two, right? Where- because like we're getting back to the point where knowledge is valued again. Like, yeah. let's do it. Let's get some knowledge. And like people in the village want books. Like we have a printing press. Let's do this. And <laughs> uh, then you know, Tadeo comes along and he's like, he delivers this kind of sermon to everyone he's like i've discovered a bunch of this stuff uh some of it's gonna upset you some of it's weird and meantime this is we're gonna have a revolution and some people are gonna come to power that are gonna use this knowledge and you can't stop them it's like a natural force he kind of argues about it in the same way that marx would argue about class warfare like it's inevitable it's just Mm -hmm. a thing that happens when these structures are in place Mm mm-hmm but then, of course, there are buzzards. So uh, there's a character in the middle section, the poet, which is this kind of almost Shakespearean fool character who antagonizes a bunch of them. And, and he dies a pretty nasty death during during the beginning of the bloodshed. And the buzzards are eating everything. Uh, 
Um, As always, the wild black scavengers of the skies laid their eggs in season and lovingly fed their young. They soared high over prairies and mountains and plains, searching for the fulfillment of that share of life's destiny which was theirs according to the plan of nature. Their philosophers demonstrated by unaided reason alone that the supreme catharsis aura regnants had created the world especially for buzzards. They worshipped him with hearty appetites for many centuries. And the buzzards shall rule the earth. It's like the end of Jurassic Park where there's those like pterodactyls flying and you look at them and it's like, oh, it's birds. Get it. It's just like birds. (laughs) Get it? Uh, And it's that I also wanted to read that because this book is peppered with Latin and I know next to no Latin. Uh, I I studied three years of Latin in college, but the problem was that there were three (laughs) non-consecutive years. So I'm not really any more qualified to comment on this than you are. <laughs> well, I just like that there's there's church Latin all over this book. And, you know, some of it's like Kyrie eleison, it's Miseremi uh, Deus. It's like the st- phrases that you just know through osmosis. Yeah, or through actual mass, like if you mm-hmm. go to a Latin Catholic mass. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then it's stuff like this tur- like this vulture nonsense, which is the cathartis aura regnant, which is the reigning turkey vulture (laughs) which is pretty awesome uh it's not a real noble animal like i think latin latin imbues things with the sort of like classical beauty that i don't think vultures really are are up to the level of (laughs) no and i had a i had another struck me funny in the third section of the book there's a there's a secret order that is passed between some of the monks and it's all in caps, and it says "Supreme Secretissimo," and it's, it's just being super secret. It means super secret, like fortissimo. It's super yeah. loud. It's <laughs> and pianissimo is really quiet. I yes, my choir you instructor can, taught me well. You, you can barely even hear it. What are you talking? Poco pianissimo. Pokemon. We got to get Forte again. Hit me with some more book uh, stuff. I do want to give a shout out to our listener, Hardy, who uh, recommended I check out the Wikipedia list of Latin phrases in A Canticle for Leibowitz, mm-hmm. which is pretty thorough. Sure, it was very instructive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the third chapter is set 600 years later, and the first line is, I think, uh, there were spaceships then, something like that. Um so we got around blowing each other up, and we invented spaceships. Well, or we blew each other up, and spaceships were somehow the first thing that we invented. Don't jump the gun. We haven't gotten to blowing each other up yet, but we okay. do have spaceships that run on nuclear power. Okay. And, and there's a bunch of treaties between the Atlantic Confederacy and the Asian Coalition, who are in a 50-year Cold War. They have treaties about using nuclear weapons and building them on planet Earth. But there's like a bunch of like gray area if you start building nuclear weapons up in space. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like they can't regulate that, I guess. And we international do, space. Yeah, international space. Uh and we do have extrasolar colonies, even though no one seems to be happy like living on them. Um, but they're there nonetheless. I can't yeah, like if we ever establish colonies on the moon or Mars or something, like for a long time, I can't imagine they'll be like super happy. No, it's it's You'd not going to go really great. You have to really want to live on Mars. Yeah, it's not going to go great for a while. Yeah. Now Europa, I go live on Europa. I go swim around Europa for a long time. Mm-hmm. My Europa. Europa. Yeah, mine. The annals. Uh, <laughs> so we meet another. We're still at the Abbey in the third section, and we meet. Uh, Abbot Dom Zerchi, and I, this is a thing that I didn't notice while reading it, but was pointed out to me later as I was reading about the book. The abbots, the leader of the abbeys, uh, stretch from A to Z. Right, there would names. be an opposite end right. of the phone book. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's to encompass the full nature of this cycle, right? Right, yeah. So we've got like auto dictation machines, we've got cars, we've got spaceships, 
and nuclear war is probably going to happen, and lo and behold, it's definitely going to happen. So the priests decide, now the priests at this point aren't just uh, sustaining and preserving knowledge from before the Great Deluge. They are, excuse me, the Flame Deluge. They are preserving all knowledge, and they have a plan to take their knowledge into space, which is called the Quo Peregrinator Grex Pastor Secum. I did... Mm-mm. It's which, fine. Yep. What does it mean? Whither wanders the flock, the shepherd is with them. Into so, space. Yes. It basically Even into space. Into space. Yeah, there, there's like a whole debate where um, Dom Zerchi is telling this guy, Brother Joshua, that he's going to get on the spaceship and they're going to vote him being in charge of the space monks and he has to accept that vocation because no one else wants it and he's probably the best guy for the job. Mm-hmm. And they talk about whether or not the church in space can be the true church. It's, and if New Rome like burns under nuclear holocaust, that they will like pass a law that says that space church is the real church, basically. It it's it's good I'm, of them to have a have a contingency plan because I'm sure like the people in regular Rome were like, you know, if we have to put Rome in the United States, we're not gonna say that it's real Rome unless <laughs> like stuff goes real bad for us. Yeah. So they have this plan, I guess, to go to Alpha Centauri and establish space Rome, mm-hmm. which seems fine. Uh <laughs> space Rome. <laughs> and yeah, the book ends with nuclear war again um it's one of those like an explosion happened we don't know who caused it there's a retaliation and then there's a retaliation to retaliation and it ends with what may or may not be a miracle where uh dom zerchi is like lying in a pile of rubble and this two-headed woman named mrs grails who sells tomatoes uh who (laughs) Uh, she wants to. She wants her second head, which is heretofore unconscious and maybe or may or may not be alive, to be baptized before she dies, so that it doesn't take her to hell. Okay. And there's like the church doesn't know what to do with her, so uh, in the end, after the explosion, um, she comes kind of wandering up to Zerchi while he's in this pile of rubble, and. Uh, Mrs. Grails is unconscious and likely in a coma, but her second head, Rachel, uh, can speak, but like does can only repeat words that are said to her, okay. and and gives Domzerki the Eucharist before he dies, uh, and then the book ends with like a zoom out on nature not having a great time after a nuclear holocaust. Uh, <laughs> like you might assume i guess yeah it's like a it's like a line about you know uh the sea creatures like the shrimp being eaten by this stuff and some other stuff being eaten by the sharks but then a bunch of dead shrimp washed up and the shark had to go to like deeper waters and was really hungry that season um it's not a great way to, it's not an uplifting ending to the book. right because can you imagine a world without shrimp that would suck oh, shrimp are so tasty i know i love shrimp uh but the reason i mention two-headed mrs Ra- mrs grail's rachel is it's implied that she is perhaps rachel anyway exempt from original sin like she's this other creature that is adjacent to the humanity that has fallen that has created okay. all this nuclear holocaust uh, and a lot is made in the book of, you know, what is, presuming God exists, what is God's relationship in all of this nightmare? And why would he create and allow such a thing to happen? What is hope in that context, right? Uh, the whole idea of sending your church into space looks a little defeatist unless you decide to reframe it as uh, faith and hope, which is what they do. I suppose. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the fourth book in this saga, the one that was published posthumously, looks like, but I am sure that two-headed people can figure out how to kill each other just as well as one-headed people can. <laughs> well, the Pope's children would probably agree with you. Yeah, getting back to like the the cyclical nature of this whole thing. Uh, I think the I think the sequel actually takes place in between the second and third 
books. Okay. Like, or okay. like sections. I've just got to assume that you've just got to, you've got to hope. And I think this is the case for real life too, is you've just got to hope that the time that you were born into is one of the good times. Like the roaring twenties. It's not, no, the roaring twenties were bad because they covered over a bunch of problems that but were But flappers and jazz. I mean, flappers were fine. Jazz was pretty good. I'm just saying that speakeasies there's i want to no, go to the roaring 20s it seems like there's no way to to like get around people being terrible to each other eventually and you just gotta hope that you get born into one of these times where we've momentarily forgotten how to be terrible to each other or like we are distracted enough by other things that we are not as terrible to each other yeah there's this moment by the way when it's when it's 2020 i'm totally gonna try and get it we, we got to try and get it called the Roaring Twenties again. <laughs> I think it should be, it shouldn't be the Roaring Twenties. It should just be a Roaring Twenties. And we should always make them roaring no matter when they happen. Oh, coming around on another Roaring Twenties. <laughs> get ready, everybody. Get ready for Casey Kasem's Roaring Twenties. <laughs> We've revived him. Um, Yeah, I, there's a there's a passage in the third section of this book, Andrew, to what you were just saying, where... After the initial nuclear event, nuclear incidents, as they are referred to, occur, Mm -hmm. the Pope stops praying for peace on Earth and starts, like, having these, like, war masses and masses for the heathens. And and everyone's like, whoa, God, the Pope is really not happy. This weird messing up. I mean, I guess if you if you know that peace on earth isn't going to happen like in the immediate future, you like don't waste your prayers. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you can only get God on the horn like every once in a while. You got to spend it on something good. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, so that's that's the book from beginning to middle to end. Uh, it certainly so does nor- like the normal order that we <laughs> that we do on the show. Well, some books don't follow that. Some books jump around a little bit more. I suppose. Um, it does follow this Dark Ages, Renaissance, 20th century arc. Uh, and like those are the church being responsible for preserving society. So being this cloister that can, you know, shuttle people along. And that's kind of what was going on in the Dark Ages. And then there's this spark of learning and interest that theoretically makes the world better for a little while. Uh, and then we become obsessed with all those things and what they can do for us and how we can get ours, uh, and that leads to nuclear war. So Always important. Yep. What's always, in it for me? What's in it for me? It's nuclear war. That's what's in it for me. Cool. So you, it sounds like you enjoyed reading this. Like, what's the, like, in 30 seconds, tell me what the prose is like and, and what people will run into if they're reading this book. Uh, you'll run into sneaky metaphors. You'll run it like, uh, a character was talking about, you know, someone, I think it was when Tadeo was examining the Abbey, says something about him, you know, examining the clam and finding the pearl that he didn't expect to be there or something Mm -hmm. like that. And it's, it, you could, because it's this weird future novel, you're not always certain if what you're reading is a metaphor for something or like just a weird mute. If it's thing. just a thing that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also because I would say he's far more concerned with the concepts that he's exploring. There are some pretty compelling conversations about a bunch of, about issues that are a little separate from the, people that are in them and certainly separate from place i don't think miller is really concerned with place that much um he his most descriptive stuff is when he's talking about buzzards and whatnot and animals Mm -hmm. but francis is like an oddly funny character he faints a lot like even when even when characters tell him not to that's always hilarious it's it's and it's played pretty well (laughs) love a good faint uh when he gets told that he's going to go meet the Pope and they're like, don't, don't faint, like keep it together. And then he totally faints anyway. Well, I'm sure he's the kind of guy where like you tell him not to faint and then he starts thinking about fainting and then it's just, it's all fainting from it's there. Just, well, you can't stop it. Nope. Um, but a good example of the types of moral quandaries. I talked earlier about like 
were the monks right to keep the knowledge the way they were preserving it and they were saying like it's open to everyone but you do have to come here where we keep all the documents under lock and key uh versus today's argument of like but people need it because what else are we going to do with this knowledge we can't just leave it here um that's a that's a pretty cyclical argument that i found compelling another one was about euthanasia in the after the first nuclear incident happens in the sec- in the third part there's a debate between an abbot and a, like a doctor where the government has issued the radiation disaster act andrew where if you are so like hurting from nuclear fallout that you would like euthanasia the government can help you out but you have to be radiated enough that it's that bad thanks obama exactly death panels mm-hmm. and uh if you're not if you just kill yourself because you think it's bad but the government doesn't know about it your family can't get like payouts for it okay i was gonna say like what are the like what do you care if you killed yourself in the legally acceptable fashion but i suppose if you have a family it can be a bad thing and so the abbot's argument here is he's like the existence of the Radiation Disaster Act is the plainest possible evidence that governments were fully aware of the consequences of another war, but instead of making the crime impossible, they tried to provide an advance for the consequences of the crime. Which is like, that's pretty damning. Like, that's yeah. pretty bad. I mean, that's uh, governments often move so slowly that we can only address the the after effects of of stuff that has happened, and we can't really anticipate a whole lot of things. Well, and the and the doctor has a pretty good counter argument, which is you know they there's no way they were going to make war impossible, so why wouldn't they plan for what would happen anyway after war? Yeah, yeah, and it's centered on euthanasia, which obviously has a lot of sticky moral and religious implications yeah um so there's no good way to side i think with either side of that argument um yeah that's that's the tone of the book is not super sci-fi e um i think the the latin and the the steeped in religious imagery um really combats that and prevents it from it prevents it from feeling like of a particular sci-fi era if that makes sense sure yeah um because you've got your like hg well sci-fi you've got your uh a little bit of your bradbury sci-fi like it's not well, limited. bradbury asimov like those are all the big people who are working in or maybe a little before this this era where I miller did, would have been writing it. yeah i did think a little bit about what this whole preservation of knowledge thing would have been if the internet had existed i can't help but think that like well, so that that particular aspect of it is a little foundationy. Oh sure, like the book, sure. The book foundation, yeah, not yeah, like a fan, a foundation, <laughs> of a house or something. <laughs> yeah, it's the the type of preservation they were doing would have been very different if if there had been fifty years of electronic correspondence, right? You know? And th- and that's like the whole thing that foundation concerns itself with is like we need to preserve as much knowledge as we can so we can like we can't get rid of this dark ages period but we have to shorten it and yes. so it's kind of dealing with the same the same cyclical ideas i mean the whole book was was modeled on the the decline and fall of the roman empire yeah yeah and uh similar uh, stuff here yeah 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 uh, uh so we talked yeah. briefly about the wanderer i don't i have not done the like internet research for what the running theories of who that guy is um in the third section he's called lazarus in the second section he's called benjamin and and referred to as an old jew of the wilderness and (laughs) the first book he doesn't really have a name at all uh it seems like it's definitely the same guy he's always described as wearing burlap and kind of wanders in and out of stuff Uh, at one point he walks up to Tadeo and says well he like stares him in the face, goes, "Well, it's not him," and then leaves. And like him is capitalized, so there's a sense that he is some sort of supernatural biblical character. I don't know if he's supposed to be Leibowitz or Jesus or what, but hmm. um, all right. No, no one really agrees on what he is, and he doesn't really drive plot as much as he is there to observe. And to drive like book club discussions. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and be a consistent presence throughout the book, which I'm sure when you're writing this as like three separate 
stories that's like a cool easter egg yeah whereas in a novel it becomes like an important thread Mm -hmm. so anybody who i know there were some listeners who were really excited to hear this episode uh and i hopefully did you did you a solid um if you have theories on who that guy is or if there's like a, a running canonical version of who he is please write in and let us know yeah yeah if you want to be a, a persistent presence in our inbox you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com uh, we also are pretty active on social media we've got a facebook page that we mentioned earlier at facebook.com slash overduepod and we have a twitter account up at twitter.com slash overduepod and, and like i mentioned earlier we've been trying to to post some more pictures i know people like those a lot and um yeah, and on our Facebook page, we have a link to our Goodreads page, with which one of our uh, listeners, Julie, helped set up. And uh, yeah, there, there have been some really cool discussions about movie novelizations and about what people's favorite episodes are. And it just seems like a cool um, spot on the internet to go and talk about, not just like what we are saying about books, but just the books themselves. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's it's really nice. Yeah, I want to uh, give Craig- a. If yeah, they, uh, yeah. Tell 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 me more about the people who've reached us over social media. Yeah, I want to do that part. I want to read a list of cool people's names. Uh, these are folks who reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter: Daisy, Graham, Ben, Tony, Rachel, Santiago, Brittany, Sarah, Sophie, Adam, Chrissy G, Jillian, Kalia, uh, Kara, Patty, Morgan, Melissa, Micah, Charlie, and Christopher, who wrote about. Uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. I was supposed to read that on in college. I started it. I read the first and last chapter. Then I typed up all the chapter headings and wrote a page musing about the subject of the chapter. I got a B. Turned out the professor... <laughs> turned, <laughs> turned out the That's professor was an scam. anarchist. Uh, so the final was just, quote, what grade should you get and why? Everyone got whatever they put. So an A. So an A. And I bet there are a bunch of self-doubting people who are like, oh, I should get a B plus, I, I guess, B because plus, blah, yeah. blah, blah, Because I knew I didn't do that one reading. Yeah. Um, if you want to know more about the show or you're new to the show and want to find some new episodes to listen to, you can head on over to OverduePodcast.com. Uh, we've got links to back episodes. We've got links, Amazon links to the books that we read. We've also got links to our iTunes page where you could subscribe, you could rate, you could review us. A bunch of people have done that recently, including Would You Kiss It, AS2Boo, Broke.com, uh, and I Am The Pie. Thanks, everybody. You know what? I, w- I would kiss it, I think. Yeah? Yeah, I think I would. I think I would kiss it. <laughs> I think I would too. Uh, you can also find links to headgum.com, which is the podcast network that we are happy to be a part of. Uh, and you could also head on over to Spreaker, which f- gladly hosts all of our episodes. They're good people over there. We assume they're glad about it. Yeah, they haven't told us either way, <laughs> to be quite honest, but they keep doing it. So it's pretty right. great. Uh, next week I'm going to be reading or okay I'm going to be taking a crack at It by Stephen King oh boy it is super long so there is a small chance that we may have to do like an emergency play or something but right now my intention is to read It by Stephen King and Rock it will and roll. be my, my first Stephen King book ever so cool yeah welcome to the club of people who've read Stephen King books it's a big club okay everybody um yeah let us know what you think about canical for Leibowitz uh let, let us know your Stephen King thoughts and uh until next Monday everybody try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.